We're going to be in Numbers chapter 32 this morning, back in the Old Testament, the book of Numbers and chapter 32, and I'm going to be bringing to you this morning a message that's really just some things that the Lord spoke to me about, just reading through um, the Old Testament and and uh, some things that have been kind of resonating in my mind. Um, I've had some conversations with my family about these truths, and and uh, I just think it's really important and valuable. And just to give you kind of a an idea of where we're at here, the nation of Israel has wandered in the wilderness now for 40 years, and they're just about to go into the promised land. They're just about to cross the Jordan River, and just before they do... Two and a half tribes of the nation of Israel come to Moses with a request. And their request is in regard to actually not entering the promised land. All right? And so that's where we're going to pick it up here in Numbers 32. One last time, would you stand with me as we read this morning? Numbers 32, beginning in verse number 1. And I want you to notice these words. It says, Now the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of cattle. And when they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, that behold, the place was a place for cattle, the children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spake unto Moses and Eliezer the priest, and to Eliezer the priest, and unto the princes of the congregation, saying, and it gives the names of some cities, Adaroth and Dibon and Jazer and Nimrah and Heshbon and Elilah and Shebam and Nebo and Beon, even the country which the Lord smote before the congregation of Israel is a land for cattle. And thy servants have cattle. Wherefore, said they, if we have found grace in thy sight, let this land be given unto thy servants for a possession. And here's the phrase that just stood out to me and has just resonated in my mind. It says, and bring us not over Jordan. And bring us not over Jordan. And I want to preach to you on that subject this morning. Bring us not over Jordan. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you please speak to us through your word. I pray that as your word goes forth this morning, that, uh, that you would just uh, fill me with your spirit, that you would give me the ability to speak your truth to your people. I pray that we would be challenged by your word, that we would uh, look within and see uh, what maybe there is in our hearts and lives that is not surrendered, not yielded to you, and may we give ourselves wholly to you and be fully surrendered to your perfect will for our lives. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you for standing. So as I mentioned, Israel is about to go into the promised land, and that land that God had promised to them is the land of Canaan, and if you were to look at a map of the Middle East, it's that little strip of land just west of the Jordan River, north of Egypt there. There's a strip of land in there that was the land of Canaan, and God promised to give that to the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel, as you probably know, was made up of 12 tribes, the 12 sons of Jacob. And these tribes would inherit, each of them, a portion of that promised land. If you remember, God said that he was going to bring them into this land that was a land flowing with milk and honey. It was a land of great abundance, and it was a very evident and obvious physical picture of the blessings of God with his covenant people, or on his covenant people, the nation of Israel. And while the 
possession of the promised land was very much a literal blessing, physical blessing from God, it also has a spiritual picture or connotation to it. You see, God had brought Israel out of bondage where they were slaves in Egypt. And for 400 years, the nation was a nation of slaves living in a foreign land. And God brought them out of that land where they wandered then in the wilderness for 40 years. And he brought them out of that land so that he could bring them into the promised land. In fact, Deuteronomy 6 Verse 23, it says, And he brought us out from thence, from Egypt, that he might bring us in to give us this land which he swore unto our fathers. So the very purpose in God delivering Israel out of Egypt was not just to set them free from the bondage of slavery, but was actually to bring great blessings upon them in this life as well. And what, what picture does that have? Well, there, there's an interesting picture that's associated with coming out of Egypt. We find over in the New Testament that coming out of Egypt is actually a picture of what we know as salvation. Prior to coming to Christ, we were in bondage to sin. We were the slaves of sin. We were not the people of God. We were separated from God because of our sin. And Christ died on the cross to pay for my sin and to pay for your sin so that we could be delivered from our sin, we could be delivered from the destruction of sin. You see, the Bible teaches us that the wages of sin is death. And that death is not only a physical death that we will all die one day, but it is actually an eternal death in which those who are lost without Christ will be separated from God for all of eternity in a place called hell, currently hell, it's called the lake of fire in eternity. It's a place of torment. It's a place of punishment for sin. And this is a, a place that the Bible calls destruction. And Jesus said that there are many that are on the road to destruction. It's a, it's a wide and a broad road, and many there be which go in thereat. And folks, the truth of the matter is that we all are born in, in sin. We're born with a sin nature. And as soon as we are of, of the ability to understand sin and right and wrong, we choose sin and we all are caught in the bonds of sin. The Bible says in Romans 5 in verse number 12 that as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, so then death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. And I was in bondage to sin. And you were in bondage to sin. And many of us now have been delivered through the blood of Jesus Christ. We realize that there was a, a payment made, a sacrifice made on our behalf. That Christ came to this earth and he lived a sinless life. And he went to the cross and he died and he shed his blood to pay for your sin and for my sin. To set us free and that all who will turn from their sin to Jesus and call upon him and receive his gift of eternal life will be saved. And I'm thankful for the day that the Lord saved my soul and brought me out of a spiritual Egypt where I was in bondage to sin, I was headed for destruction, but now I have been made free from all of that through the blood of Christ. And I'm thankful that I can testify to you this morning that the word of God is true when it says in John chapter 8 that whom therefore the Son sets free, he will be free indeed. I'm thankful that we have been freed from the bondage of sin. But you know, isn't it interesting that Christ did not only come 
to save us from the penalty of sin. Christ didn't just come and die for us so that we could be free to go to heaven when we die and not have to go to hell. He didn't just come to set us free from the bonds of sin. Actually, Christ said in John chapter 10, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. God actually wants for us to have an abundant life. Now, this abundance is not only found in material possessions. Many, many people teach that. Well, the abundant life, that means that you, if, if you have enough faith, you're going to be wealthy and you're going to be healthy and there's never going to be another problem in your life. If, and if you've got problems, it's because you don't have enough faith. Friend, that's not found anywhere in the Bible. But there is a reality that spiritually speaking, there is an, a, there is an abundant life that is found in Christ that after salvation, Christ wants us to live in abundance and blessing. He wants us to live in a place where we are walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, where our, our lives are bearing fruit to the glory of God, where we are continually being sanctified and growing to be more Christ-like, where we have the joy of the Lord and the peace of God in our lives. And this is what God desires for us. And it's so fascinating to me as you look at the Old Testament, you see foreshadowings and pictures of truth that we understand now today in New Testament times, that as Israel was brought out of Egypt, I have been set free from sin. But as Israel was brought into the promised land, I too can have abundance. I can live a life of abundance, spiritual abundance and blessing. And I believe that the crossing into the promised land, the crossing the Jordan River, typifies or pictures that life that God wants to give us in a place where we have fellowship with God and a relationship with God and we're experiencing the fruit that God wants to bring forth in our lives. This land that, that the nation of Israel was going to be given was the best that the earth had to offer. And God said, I've reserved this just for you. And just as they're about to cross into the promised land, two and a half tribes, the tribe of Reuben and the tribe of Gad and half of the tribe of Manasseh, they come to Moses and they say, Hey, Moses, did you happen to notice that the land here on the east side of the Jordan River, this is a land that is very suitable for cattle. This is good pasture land. This is the, the plains. And we are cattlemen. These were ranchers. I'm sure that th these two and a half tribes walked around in cowboy boots and hats and, you know, no, not, not quite. But they were cattlemen. That's what they did. So they looked at the land where they were and they said, you know, we really don't have any desire to go and find our inheritance across the river in the promised land. We'd rather stay over here on the east side of Jordan, can we have our inheritance here on this side of Jordan? What fascinates me about this is that God said, listen, I brought you out of Egypt so that I could bring you into the promised land and my blessings for you lie on the west side of the Jordan River. And two and a half tribes said, no, we're good here on the east side. There's a really interesting picture in that because the truth is, 
that many times we have this idea in our minds that God's plan and God's will and God's best for us is maybe not really as good as we want it to be. Notice that they thought they were the exception to God's rule. He said, I love the wording in verse number 4. Even the country which the Lord smote before the congregation of Israel is a land for cattle. And then it says, and thy servants have cattle. <laughs> uh, this, this land is suited for me. It fits me like a glove. See this? See this land? This is perfect land for cattle. Hey, Moses, look at me. I've got cattle. Can I have this land? Isn't it interesting that sometimes we have this idea in our mind that maybe what God really wants for us isn't what we want for ourselves and that maybe if we went about things our way, life would be better. These two and a half tribes were convinced that life was better for them on the east side of Jordan than on the west side of Jordan. And I want to show you some issues that arose in the nation of Israel and even some conflict that came about because of this decision. And I want to make a little bit of application in our lives today. I'll try to stay away from too much application because I want the Holy Spirit to do this in your life. But have you ever considered that sometimes God may allow us to do something that we desire that may not be in our best interest. You see, if you were to read the rest of this, we won't take the time to read the rest of this chapter. We're going to read some over in the book of Joshua in just a moment. We won't take the time to read all of this, but if you read it, Moses grants them their request conditionally. And he says to them, listen, as long as you are willing to go into and cross the Jordan River and fight with the rest of the nation for the, for the promised land. As, as long as you're willing to go in and, and, and fight, you're not just chickening out, you're not just being cowards, you're not just being lazy. If you'll come in and help us conquer the rest of the land, you can have your land here on this side of Jordan. And they agreed to that, and they did that, and they fulfilled it, and God gave them what they desired. He gave them their request, and they took up their inheritance on the east side of Jordan. But I want you to know that there are times that God does allow us to do certain things. God's not necessarily angry with us. He's not against us. But he allows us to go in a way that we think is best for us when it may not be his perfect will for us. I'm reminded of a statement that's made about the nation of Israel when they basically complained to the Lord because they were sick of eating the manna in the wilderness. They said, give us flesh to eat. And the Bible says in the book of Psalms that he, he sent them quails. He gave them their request, but it says that he sent leanness into their souls. And sometimes we need to be careful that, that when we think we know what is best, and we're willing to say, you know what, God, I know that this is what you want for me, but as long as you're okay with it, I would rather do this. I know your plan is A, but I would rather choose B as long as it's not going to upset you. God may even say to us, okay, if that's what you want, but we may find that God's way was better than our way. 
So I want to just show you some issues that arose because of this decision and this statement, bring us not over Jordan. The first thing I want to show you is that it brought concern. And the person that it brought concern to first and foremost was Moses. He hears this request and notice what he says in verse number 6. We're in Numbers 32. He says in verse 6, And Moses said unto the children of Gad and to the children of Reuben, Shall your brethren go to war? And shall ye sit here? And wherefore discourage ye the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord hath given them? Thus did your fathers when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up into the valley of Eshkel and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the children of Israel that they should not go into the land which the Lord had given them. You remember when this happened, don't you? Forty years ago, this is what he's saying, forty years ago, your fathers were the very ones that went into the promised land to spy it out. And when they came back, they said, you know, it's a great land, it's wonderful, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, and, 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 and there are... Uh, grapes, clusters of grapes that have to be born between two men. They have to carry them. They're so, I mean, this is a land of blessing. But there's giants in the land. We're afraid of these giants. I mean, in, in, in our eyes, we're like grasshoppers to them. That's how big these guys are. And then they, they even said, and in their eyes, like they went up to them and said, hey, do we look like grasshoppers to you, you know? And so they were so, so sure that the land was too hard for them to conquer, they came back and they brought what the Bible calls an evil report. They said, listen, God may have blessed that land, but we can't take it. And their lack of faith caused the rest of the nation to go, okay, we're not going into the promised land. Forget this. We, we'd be better off dying in the wilderness. Actually, we'd be better off going back to Egypt. Can you imagine I'd rather live as a slave in Egypt than in the land of promise. But that was what they did. And for 40 years, because of their lack of faith, they wandered in the wilderness till that entire generation died off. And now, 40 years later, their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren are finally going to be able to walk into the promised land. And now there's two and a half tribes that are saying... We don't want to go. And Moses is like, listen, if you're afraid to go and fight, you're, you're just like your fathers. Notice he says in verse number 14, he says, and behold, ye are risen up in your father's stead. Uh, you're, just, you're just acting just like your fathers before you. You're going to discourage the hearts of the nation of Israel to where they're not going to want to obey the Lord. Moses saw their decision to stay on the east side of Jordan as a lack of faith. Now, I will say that this is partially true. It was a lack of faith. Now, it's different than the lack of faith from their fathers. Their fathers said, God is not able to deliver the land unto us. That was the lack of faith that their fathers had. I don't see that heart or that attitude in these two and a half tribes because these were the ones who actually went first into the promised land and they went ahead of the rest of the nation to conquer the land. They weren't afraid. They knew God could deliver them. 
But their lack of faith was not that God can't do what he said, but that God's will is not what is best for us. And I want to say to you this morning, if, that, if you struggle in your life to yield to God and his will for you, it is a lack of faith. To the young person who says, well, I know that I ought to wait for the spouse that God has prepared for me. But this person over here, I mean, they may not be God's perfect will and they don't really have a heart for the Lord. But I just, I'm so attracted to them and they're so enjoyable to be around. I just, my heart just overflows when I'm around them. I've got to marry this person because if I wait for God's will, it's never going to be as good as this. The person who says, well, I know that this might, the, 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 it may not be God's perfect will for me to make this decision or that decision, but this is what I really desire. What you're saying in your heart is, I don't believe that God's way is the best way. Folks, faith sometimes requires that we trust that even if it contradicts our will and our desires or what we think are our desires, that God's way is the best way. Because I want you to know that God's way and God's will for your life is better than anything that you could ever envision or imagine for yourself. So Moses says, well, you're just lacking in faith. Now, it was partially true, but he also misunderstood them. And he was concerned also that, that their decisions could actually cause discouragement in the hearts of the rest of the nation. I mean, after all, why is it that one-sixth of our nation doesn't want to be where God wants us to be? Maybe they're right. Maybe, land, maybe the land is better on this side of Jordan. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't go to all this effort and take the land that God has promised to us. And it could become a discouragement to the rest of the nation. That's what he says twice, actually. But look at verse number 7. Wherefore discourage ye the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land? Did you know that a lack of submission and obedience to God's will in your life could actually be a stumbling block to others? You say, well, I know that this isn't necessarily God's best, but I think that I'm okay. Listen, it is possible for you and I to be fully within our right as Christians to say, well, God will allow me to do this. Make no mistake, God allowed them to stay on the east side of Jordan. But there was still a danger that the rest of the nation could be discouraged. And I want you to know this morning, Christian, that your decisions make an impact on other people. They affect your church family. They affect, by the way, parents, your children. They'll affect those who are close to you. You know, if they don't want to follow the Lord, maybe I shouldn't follow the Lord in the same way. You may be operating within the bounds of your liberty in Christ, but the question needs to be, am I a stumbling block to others? Am I causing others to be discouraged from doing the will of God because I have not given myself wholly to it? So this created a concern in Moses, but it also created confusion. 
It caused misunderstandings. I mentioned already that this created a misunderstanding in Moses' mind. Moses thought they're just too afraid to go into the promised land. They're just like their fathers. This was confusion. It wasn't that, that wasn't the case. He believed that they were not going to follow the Lord, but that wasn't entirely true. Notice he says in verse uh, 15, he says, For if you turn away from after him, in other words, if you turn away from following the Lord, he will yet again leave them, the nation of Israel, in the wilderness, and ye shall destroy all the... And you shall destroy all this people. Moses says, listen, if you're going to disobey God, if you're going to rebel against God, God's going to bring judgment on the entire nation. They're like, wait a second. No, no, no. That's not our intention at all. We don't want to disobey the Lord. We don't want to refuse to obey him. We just like the land over on this side of the river. Sometimes I'm afraid when we hold back from doing God's perfect will, it brings... Confusion. It causes others to wonder how committed we really are to the things of God. I'm afraid too many Christians want to live life with this just kind of straddling defense. I don't want to get outside of God's plan and God's will. I don't want to upset God. I don't want to live under the chastening of God. I want to make sure that I am within the boundaries of what is acceptable but I also kind of want to have one foot in the world. I want to kind of just do my own thing. And I don't know that I want to be wholly sold out and all in on the things of the Lord. I want you to notice that in verse number 11, here he says, Surely none of the men that came up out of Egypt from 20 years old and upward shall see the land which I swear unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me. But look at verse 12. Save Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, and Joshua the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. Did you know if you were to do a search on that phrase, wholly follow the Lord, it only ever applies in Scripture to two people, Caleb and Joshua. That was their testimony. They wholly, completely followed the Lord. That was their testimony. We did what God wanted us to do with all our heart. That's pretty distinct and different than the rest of the nation. And there's a contrast here between even these two and a half tribes and those two men who said, no, 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 whatever God has called us to do, not only is he able, but we believe that this is the best thing for us. Do you remember Caleb at 80 years old? came before Moses and Joshua, and he said, hey, do you remember that God promised to give me an inheritance in this land? Oh, yeah, it happens to be in the mountain, and it happens to be a land of giants, but I'm not afraid of them. I want to go and take that mountain. We even sing a song about that. It's in our hymnal. I want that mountain. That comes from Caleb, an 80-year-old man who said, if this is what God wants for me, this is what I want for me. They wholly followed the Lord. But when there is some degree of holding back, it creates confusion. And folks, I don't live to please you. I don't live to, to make myself look good in the eyes of others. But I do want this. I want there to be no question 
in anyone's mind where I stand. I want it to be obvious and evident to anyone who looks at my life that this guy is all in on God's will. And wherever and whenever and however God leads, he's all in, he's fully committed because he knows that God's way is best. That's what I want to be. I don't want to create confusion. I don't want my children to grow up going, there's something not quite right with dad. I know they'll probably say that anyway. But I mean, spiritually speaking. You know, on one hand, he's, he's faithful in church and, and he does these things, but then it seems like the rest of the week he's just kind of consumed with all the things of the world. He's all about making money or he's all about his hobbies and sports and all of that, and there's just kind of a confusion. I don't want to be a, a guy who creates confusion or questions. I want to be like Caleb and Joshua who say, whatever God leads, I am all in. It created confusion with Moses. But then if you would go with me over to the book of Joshua, just uh, a book forward from there, there's Numbers and then Deuteronomy, then Joshua. Joshua 22. And here's what happened. So uh, in the early part of Joshua, it describes how Israel went into the promised land, they crossed the Jordan River, they conquered the land, and now it's about to be divided up, or it's being divided up, uh, between, between the nation of Israel, between the ten and a half tribes. And I want you to notice that in verse number 9, it says, And the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned and departed from the children of Israel out of Shiloh, which is the land of Canaan, to go unto the country of Gilead, to the land of their possession, whereof they were possessed, or, or where they possessed, um, according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. So now these, these two and a half tribes are going to go back across Jordan to take possession of that land. Verse 10, And when they came unto the borders of Jordan, that are in the land of Canaan, the children of Reuben and the children of Gad... And the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by Jordan, a great altar to see to it. And the children of Israel heard say, Behold, the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar over against the land of Canaan in the borders of Jordan at the passage of the children of Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered themselves together at Shiloh to go up to war against them. <laughs> they about started a war. Why? why? Why would they do this? The whole nation is going to rise up now against these two and a half tribes. Why would they do that? Well, because they built this altar. And this altar that they built created confusion. Why did it create confusion? Because God said there is one place where I am to be worshipped. You, you are, you are to, to set up the tabernacle... At that time, it was set up in Shiloh. And in, as part of that tabernacle, there was one altar that was to be offered upon. This was the place where they were to come and bring their offerings to the Lord. And now, the rest of Israel is thinking, hey, if they're setting up an altar there in their land, they must be deciding that they're not going to obey the commandment of the Lord and come and worship here at Shiloh. And so they, they said, you know... they. they Fresh in their minds was the sin of Achan where 
uh, that one man among them took of the, uh, uh, the goods of the, uh, of the land of, of Jericho and God brought judgment on the entire nation. And they're thinking, man, if, if two and a half tribes decide that they're going to rebel against the Lord, it's going to bring reproach on all of us. We've got to do something about this. So they, they gather together and they're going to go and they're going to conquer these two tribes. They're going to go kill them. Verse 15 says, And they came unto the children of Reuben, and to the tribe, uh, children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, unto the land of Gilead. And they spake with them, saying, Thus saith the whole congregation of the Lord, What trespass is this that ye have committed against the God of Israel? To turn away this day from following the Lord, in that ye have builded you an altar, that ye might rebel this day against the Lord? Now, if we were to read on, we won't take the time to do that at this moment. But if we were to read on, we would find that these two and a half tribes are like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. That's not why we built an altar. We have no intention of sacrificing sacrifices on there or, or doing any of that. This altar is to serve only as a memorial. It's to be a witness between us and you. It, it's just there, and they'll describe a little bit later, it's just there so that our children aren't cut off from the rest of the nation later on. But isn't it fascinating that these two and a half tribes, when they chose to not follow the Lord wholly, they had to explain themselves. They had to explain themselves to Moses. Oh no, you're misunderstanding. That's not our intention. Then they had to explain themselves to the entire nation. No, 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 no. We didn't mean to cause confusion in setting up this altar. But friend, why was there confusion in the first place? There was confusion because they didn't choose God's best. Because they weren't committed to obeying the Lord. Folks, ultimately their explanation appeased the rest of the nation... But I can't help but consider that there would have been no need for explanation and there would have been no confusion or misunderstanding if they would have simply obeyed the Lord and crossed the river. And then I want to just point out to you briefly their cause because they've set up this altar and then they explain themselves to the rest of the nation why they built the altar. Look at verse 22. It says, The Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods, he knoweth. And Israel, he shall know, if it be in rebellion or, in or if in transgression against the Lord, save us not this day that we have built this altar to turn from following the Lord, or if to offer thereon burnt offering or meat offering, or if to offer peace offerings thereon, let the Lord himself require it. And if we have not rather done it for fear of this thing. By the way, Anytime you're making decisions based on fear, that's probably a wrong decision. It says, here's the reason we've done it. For fear of this thing, saying, in time to come, your children might speak unto our children, saying, what have ye to do with the Lord God of Israel? For the Lord hath made Jordan a border between us and you. Ye children of Reuben and children of Gad, ye have no part in the Lord. So shall your children make our children cease from fearing the Lord. So here's what they're saying. Listen, they're saying to the rest of the nation, 
we built this altar to stand as a witness between you and us so that our children later on would not be cut off from the rest of the nation. Now, on the surface, this seems like a just cause, right? I mean, anyone, any good parent, any godly person is going to be concerned about their children and, and wanting future generations to serve the Lord. This sounds like a good thing, but I want you to notice what they're saying. They're saying, we did this so that our children would not be separated from the rest of the nation of Israel. And again, I go back to the fact, had they simply obeyed the Lord in the first place, there would have been no concern for that. There would have been no need to say, even though we're on this side of the river, we're still part of you, don't forget. They would have simply obeyed the Lord. But now they're saying, listen, we're cut off. Let me just ask you, whose choice was that? Whose decision was it to be separated from the rest of the nation? It wasn't God's choice. Notice even in verse 25, it says, For the Lord hath made Jordan a border between us and you. Now they're saying that this is what the rest of the nation is going to say. But, but they're, it's like they're attributing this to God, saying, see, God kind of cut us off. And I always find it fascinating that a lot of times people will get out of the will of God, and then when there are some negative consequences that come in, they start to attribute those things to the Lord or to God's people, to other Christians, to the church. And they want to blame the pastor. They want to blame the church. They want to blame legalistic Christians or whatever the case is and say, well, the reason that we are where we are and we feel like we're on the outside is because we're not being treated the way that we ought to be treated. And friend, I just want to say to you, don't expect to be treated just like you're part of the rest of, of God's people if you want to go out and live like the world. I'm not saying we ought to be unkind or unloving or anything of that nature. But what I am saying is when someone chooses to separate themselves and remove themselves, it's not God's fault when they're on the outside looking in. And here they're saying, listen... We're afraid that what you do, they're pointing the finger at the rest of the nation, we're afraid that what you do is going to cause our children to quit fearing the Lord. And if I could talk to these folks today, I would just look at them and say, maybe you need to be less concerned with how the rest of Israel is going to treat you, but if you're really concerned about your children, maybe you should think twice about separating yourself from God's perfect will. The danger that their children were in was not from the rest of the nation. The danger their children was in was the fact that their parents would rather dabble over here on the fringes of God's will, saying, ah, God will allow us to do this. We're, we're not outside of his will. We're not outside of the bounds of Scripture. God said this was okay. But then they wonder why they feel separated. Folks, I'll, I'll just tell you this, and again, I'm not trying to I'm not singling anyone out, I'm not, but, I, but I do want to say this. I've dealt with so many people, so many people, who have decided in their minds and their hearts that they're going to move away from certain positions, convictions, certain 
priorities and ways of life. And they find themselves on kind of the outside and looking at others and pointing the finger at others and saying, see, you ought to be treating us differently. And the reason that things aren't going in my life or in my children's life the way that they ought to is because of you. And they want to ascribe that to others, but folks, we ought to be concerned about how our life is affecting our children and grandchildren and future generations. What confusion maybe we're causing in the minds of others, as they look at us, are they seeing someone who is all in on the Lord's will and serving Him? Maybe these two and a half tribes should have been more concerned with being distinct and separate from the nations around them than they were with being identified with the people inside of the promised land. I don't know what application the Lord may make to this in your life, but I do want to ask you this, because I think it all comes back really to one question in the way that we look at things. Here's the question. Are we more concerned with God approving of what we're doing? Or are we more concerned with being exactly where God wants us to be? There's a difference. Sometimes people look at the Bible like, you know, this is just a set of rules. And as long as I don't violate any of these rules, then I guess I'm in the clear. I'm good. But folks, we ought to look at this book as though it is what it is. God's perfect guide for our life. And, and, and we ought to look at this book and say, not what can I do or what can I get away with? How much of my will can I, can I accomplish without, God, without breaking the boundaries of God's plan for me? But we ought to look at the word of God and say, you know what, Lord, what is your will? What is your best? And what do you want me to do? I'm trying to encourage my children today. And in and, 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 and this stage of their lives where they are, I'm trying to encourage them, don't just live your life based on what you think God is okay with. But ask yourself, what does God want for me? When I make a decision, Lord, what is your will? What is your best? And then I just want to say, I, I don't know anyone who's here in terms of your heart. Only God knows, you and God. Most of the things that I've said today, I've, I've been preaching this morning primarily to those who know the Lord, those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, who've received Him as Savior. But friend, if there's never been a time in your life where you have turned from your sin to Jesus and you've called upon Him and received His gift of eternal life, you are still like a nation living in bondage. And before you can come into the promised land, before you can find God's will for your life, you need to be delivered. You need to be saved. And the Bible tells us that God's will for us actually is that we would be saved. God is not willing, the Bible says in 2 Peter 3, that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If there's never been a time in your life where you came to repentance. You, you saw yourself as a sinner like God says you are, unable to save yourself, 
You said, you know what, I realize that Jesus is the only way. His sacrifice that he paid on the cross for me is the only way I can be saved. And so I'm turning to him in faith. I'm not trusting in myself. I'm not trusting in my good works. I'm not trusting in my baptism or my church membership or, or my religion to make me right with God. I am simply looking to Jesus and trusting him alone to save me. Friend, if there's never been a time in your life where you have received Christ, can I just encourage you today, why not be delivered from bondage? Why not look to Christ and receive the gift of eternal life that he offers freely to whosoever, to everyone? As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Why not today turn your life over to Christ, call upon him, receive his gift of eternal life, believe on him, and be saved today.